Our scripture reading this morning, which will include our sermon text, comes in two parts. First, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, I'm sorry, Psalms chapter 40. The reason I just said that is I had it turned to Isaiah 40 and I started to read it just before I came up here and I thought, that's not our text. And uh, so I'm glad I discovered that, but then I said, what it was it? Uh, Psalm chapter 40, and we'll read the first eight verses, and then we'll turn to uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and chapter 10, and we'll read verses four through 10 there, okay? Let me pray for just a moment before we read the scripture. Lord, as we calm ourselves here, as we look forward to hearing your word first read and then preached, I do pray that you would give us a sense of stillness, of peace, of receptivity, of gladness and joy, and ultimately speaking, Lord, of obedience, worship, and submission to you, the one true and living God, who is infinitely good, infinitely just, infinitely righteous, infinitely merciful, compassionate, and loving. And that we will, in our hearing, and in our speaking, and in our going, and in our giving, we will exalt Jesus Christ as Lord of glory, Son of God, Word made flesh. Now give us ears and minds and hearts, Lord, to be attentive to your word and to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 40, first eight verses. We'll just note there the heading is part of the text, and it says, for the director of music of David, a psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord Yahweh. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord Yahweh. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord Yahweh his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord Yahweh, my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now we'll turn to the book of Hebrews, which you'll find in your pew Bibles on page 1167. And we'll read verses four through eight. Hebrews chapter 10 verses four through eight. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, 
But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we now sit before you as your servant Yuri comes to speak of the servant of all, Jesus Christ, and how both in this psalm and in this passage in Hebrews, your word points to him as Savior and Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would hear and respond in faith to your word and to you, and most of all to him, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, and uh, I'd encourage you to keep your copy of the scriptures open to both Psalm chapter 40, Psalm 40, and Hebrews chapter 10. Just keep your finger in both places will probably be helpful later on. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been preparing ourselves for Easter. We've been doing that by looking closely at a number of psalms under the rubric that you'll find on the front of your bulletin. You read there, it says, Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, Son of David, Word made flesh. And back in his first sermon in this series, Pastor Mark brought home to us the fact that Jesus is indeed the Lord of glory, exalted, sitting even now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. This is where he has been since he ascended into the clouds while his disciples looked on. And we can read about it in the New Testament since Luke recorded it at the very beginning of the book of Acts. But we can also read about it in the Old Testament, since Jesus' ancestor, David, saw Jesus' exaltation 1,000 years before it happened in a vision that he wrote down as a song, a song that we call Psalm 110, which is where we started our series. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is where Jesus is right now, at the right hand of the Father. Well, then at the beginning of March, Pastor Mark transitioned us to Psalm 40, reminding us that while we normally think that seeing is believing, in reality, believing is seeing. That is, that only by faith in the true and living God will we be able to see him clearly. But more than that, In our fallen and confusing world, it's only by faith in him that we can acquire any true perspective into our lives or our world at all, which is a pretty bold statement. 
And indeed, waiting for the Lord, as Psalm 40 calls us to do, means taking this long view. Waiting for the Lord means accepting that we are a part of his story. A story in which we're rescued as evil is destroyed. And God is glorified forever. Mark told us that waiting for the Lord sets our hearts to singing and to sharing God's story of hope inspiring others to come along with us. And then last week, Dr. Neil encouraged us by reminding us of the fact that God is for us, that we can trust him since he holds our past, our present, and our future, and yet we must guard against pride. Well, today, we come to the very heart of this unique psalm, Psalm 40. But before we get down to today's text and to what makes it unique. I just want to pray once again. Lord God, the absence of a screen in front of us as we conducted the first part of our service really brought home to me and alarmed me at how much I depend on my eyes, depend on what I see in front of me, how much I'm accustomed to having a screen in front of me and and really made me realize how hard of hearing I am most of the time. And I expect that that's happening to me. I'm probably not the only one. So Lord, I pray that you would blaze into our hearts this morning, that you would open our hard hearts and our stony ears, that you would dig ears for us as we will read about in just a moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now again, before we get down to the text and to what makes Psalm 40 unique, I think it's worth asking what unifies all of the Psalms. That is, what's happening when Christians read any Psalm devotionally or when we sing the Psalms together as worship? Who is it exactly who is speaking in all the psalms? Or to use the terms of this psalm in particular, who waited for the Lord? Now, knowing who is saying something is basic to understanding any communication. But in the case of the psalms, this can be complicated. Now, as Pastor Mark just pointed out, we should take the psalm headings in our Bible seriously as part of the inspired text. And the one we find here calls this a psalm of David. And there's nothing in this psalm that would call into question the fact that he's the author. So, absolutely, David waited for the Lord. But at the same time, we know that the book of the psalms was the hymnal of the ancient people of Israel. In this very psalm, later on, we hear about the great assembly. And back in verse 5, we find the word us. God has multiplied his deeds and thoughts toward us. So it's not only David, but his whole people throughout their generations who we can rightly think of as waiting for the Lord. And then the New Testament suggests that Jesus himself, in a unique way, not only as the Logos, the living word, but as the eternal worship leader, 
Jesus himself is always singing the Psalms. First of all, we have it as part of the passion story in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. They portray Jesus singing a hymn with his disciples after the Last Supper, if you remember. Now, the experts tell us that this was probably something from Psalm 114 to 118, because that was what was traditionally sung. But now, also listen to this verse from Hebrews 2. Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, or he is saying, to be more precise, and now Hebrews quotes Psalm 22. I, Jesus, will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I, Jesus, will sing your praises. So the book of Hebrews tells us that it is Jesus himself who is for all time leading his gathered brothers and sisters in the praise of God. Leading his gathered brothers and sisters in singing psalms. And he does this at least in part using the words of David, which as the Logos, Jesus inspired in the first place. So Jesus waited and is waiting for the Lord as well. And obviously it follows that if he led his disciples in singing psalms, if, as Hebrews says, he is right now in the heavenlies leading the assembly of his people to declare God's name and sing his praise, clearly we, who you remember he is not ashamed to call brothers and sisters, we can know that especially when we sing the psalms, we are right there in the heavenlies along with him. Each one of us who is united with Christ can say, I waited for the Lord. But I should also make clear that this is not true of every word or phrase in the Bible or even in the Psalms. There are words that we cannot easily or casually claim for ourselves. And there are others, confessions of sin, for instance, that Jesus could not claim for himself, at least not in a simple, straightforward way. Still, as we heard in our reading just a few moments ago, take a look here now in Hebrews 10. Later in the book of Hebrews, that is chapter 10, we find the author doing the same thing that he did in chapter 2, explicitly laying the words of the very passage in the psalm we're studying today on Jesus' own lips. Hebrews says, when Christ came into the world, he, Jesus, said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Jesus, said, Behold, I, Jesus, have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Behold, I have come. These are the words to which everything in this psalm has been leading, from waiting to deliverance, to praise, to promise, to blessing, to adoration, and now to this kind of unusual proclamation. Behold, 
I have come. Hebrews claims that it is Jesus himself who takes these words out of David's mouth to herald his own arrival. But what does, what does that all mean? And why are these words here in this position in this psalm, a psalm that started with something about being pulled out of a slimy pit? To understand that, we have to take a small step backward to look at the first word of today's passage, to verse 6 of Psalm 40. So you can take a look over there, Psalm 40, verse 6. If you don't have your copy of the scriptures open, it's found on page 549 in the Pew Bibles. Verse 6 of Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, and skip down a line, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Now, since this sentiment is something that we are sympathetic to, it doesn't seem all that remarkable to us. If we're honest, we find the whole idea of burnt offerings and sacrifices a little disgusting. So we're inclined to assume that God must be grossed out by them too. Our modern superiority complex with its delusion that humanity is well on its way to leaving violence behind, its lie that ours is an ever more enlightened and peaceful world, this makes us think we must instinctively understand this verse better than anyone who lived in a time when the sight of blood was common. So our eyes tend to glide right on by verses like this. Offerings you have not required, check. We don't do that anymore. God seeming to affirm a completely bloodless redemption is right in line with our biases. But if you think that's what's being done here, you misunderstand David, and you misunderstand the Bible. To someone in David's time, to someone in Jesus' time, practically every aspect of life was related to the sacrificial system of worship. The expected sequence of a psalm like this would be trouble, waiting on the Lord, deliverance, praise, promise, blessing, adoration, and then thanksgiving, as expressed in the usual way, sacrifice. That is, the ancient progression of thought would go something like this. Hey, everybody, I was in trouble. I waited on the Lord and he saved me. So I was inspired to sing his praises and trust in him. In fact, everyone who trusts in God is bound to be blessed because God's plans for us are beyond our wildest dreams. So now let's all get together and celebrate with a great big feast in honor of our marvelous God. Right? Makes sense? Because that sacred celebration, the offering of those sacrifices, was the way of things, the right way, the blessed way. Because in the ancient world, for most people throughout history, in fact, there has been no separation between the religious part of life and the secular part of life. And the sacrifices and offerings were not only for the rich, not only for priests and for kings, they were for the whole community, expressions of gratitude and generosity in response to the blessing of God, or, if you were pagan, the gods. So everyone benefited. 
And the assumption was that God, or the gods, enjoyed them as much as everyone else. In that context, the thought that God was not only not pleased with your sacrifices, but that your sacrifices were not even required, that they were basically worthless, would be baffling. For some, it would be more than deeply troubling. It would be enraging. Do you remember why Cain killed Abel? God was not pleased with his sacrifice. And that devastating knowledge in his proud heart festered and festered. But there's a bigger problem than missing the way this verse would offend the ancient ear. At least it's a problem if you want to take the whole Bible seriously, if you're like me and you insist that the whole Bible is relevant. The problem is this. Verse 6, offerings and sacrifices you have not desired, seems to disagree with a lot of the Bible. God does not require burnt offerings or sin offerings? Hello, did David not read Leviticus? And what about the many passages that talk about how the pleasing aroma of a sacrifice would go up to heaven? God did desire, and he often was indeed delighted with his people's sacrifices and offerings. So what's the deal? Are the liberal Bible scholars right? They like to believe that there was some major tension between the priests and the prophets, that the priests were the custodians and exponents of the law of Moses, as opposed to the prophets who had an overwhelming sense of God's presence. And I'm just, in case you're wondering, quoting one of these liberal theologians. According to liberal theology, it was the priests who were interested in sacrifice, while the prophets were more interested in personal holiness. The priests were corrupt because their sacrifices gave the people an out, an excuse to sin, while the prophets demanded real righteousness, strict adherence to an exacting moral code. Liberals historically maintained that the priests represented what was old and broken in ancient Hebrew religion, while the prophets were the inspiring voice of the new. The priests, in short, were dead. The prophets were alive with God's spirit. Now, this way of thinking is still very common, and it's infected the evangelical church as well. Maybe it's what you believe. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe it's what you believe. Maybe it's what you were taught. It was the dominant assumption in Canada, in Canada when your parents and grandparents were attending church. The trouble with it is that it is so obviously not true. It doesn't come close to what you find when you actually open the Old Testament and read, say, the story of Moses, who was a prophet and the model for all the prophets who came after him, but who was also the one who brought in the sacrificial system. The fact is that the prophets didn't just pull their moral code out of thin air. They based their inspiring visions 
and dire predictions on the law of Moses. To maintain the fiction of priests and prophets vigorously opposing one another, you have to either ignore most of what the Bible actually says, which is what most liberal and progressive evangelical pastors do nowadays, or you have to pull the Bible apart piece by piece and say that this part was written by these people who were opposed to these other people who thought this was true. Which is what liberal Bible scholarship has been doing for the last 200 years. And it's why we are where we are. And why even evangelicals have trouble believing the Bible. But it's not true. Not if you spend even a little bit of time in the Bible. But still, David is crystal clear about God not desiring or requiring sacrifices. And he's thorough about it, too. He uses four different Hebrew words for various offerings to make sure his people wouldn't miss what he was saying. We have it as sacrifice, offering, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. Those are four different Hebrew words. So he didn't want his people to miss what he was saying about the total inadequacy of the sacrificial system. To make this all the more confusing, we know that David himself regularly offered sacrifices of all kinds. But of course, this thorny problem is solved when we realize that David was looking ahead. David was a prophet as Peter says on Pentecost. But as I've just said, this didn't mean that he disagreed with the law or had a problem with the priests. He just saw clearly what the book of Hebrews says, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, as our passage from Hebrews says. Hebrews verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Offerings could never save you. They were never intended to save you. They did not and could not pull you out of the slimy pit of your sin. They did, however, give you a way to thank God for pulling you out. They could even temporarily purify you and so provide the occasion on which God would be pleased to draw near. But sacrifice did not buy him off. It wasn't an indulgence, a license to sin. It wasn't a quid pro quo, a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of thing. That would be a perversion of sacrifice. And it was that kind of twisting of the sacrificial system that the prophets objected to. But that doesn't seem to be what David has in mind here. He's not making any accusations. He's simply stating a fact. Sacrifice and offerings you did not require or desire. He's awakening here to the logic of sacrifice, to the potential of sacrifice. In the context of his own deliverance, in his prayers and praise, he's turning over in his mind how it was that he came to be saved. How 
God saved him. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And then David uses these mysterious language, this mysterious language in these verses. He's groping along in the darkness, aware of the contradictions that we've just been outlining. And a light flashes on. God seems to give him a glimpse of of something or someone outside of time and space. Who is it? Well, I'm not going to answer that just yet. These four words that I just talked about that David uses to refer to the various offerings surround a bit of a puzzle in the middle of verse 6. Unfortunately, neither one of our usually good translations gives us the literal meaning of the original words. We have it in the NIV as, My ears you have pierced. The ESV says, you have given me an open ear. But if you have the ESV in front of you, follow the footnote. And you'll find the meaning of the original Hebrew words, which, is, which are these. Ears you have dug for me. Ears you have dug for me. Not pierced, not just opened. Now, our translations and our commentaries bring out the idea of obedience here, which is all fine and good. It's, that's right. It is about obedience. But they don't really deal with this image of ears being dug. And so I don't think they go quite far enough. I think the significance of the image is rather obvious, though. Who would say, ears you have dug for me? Wouldn't it be the handiwork of a craftsman who's coming to life? And that's exactly what's reflected in the loose Greek translation of this Hebrew phrase that we heard quoted in our reading from the book of Hebrews. But there's a bit of a twist here if you take a look back at Hebrews 10. The Greek Old Testament that was typically used in the New Testament is called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translates the original Hebrew phrase this way, ears you have fashioned me, or ears you have prepared for me. Now, if this is the idea of a divine artisan sculpting a human figure, then this seems quite reasonable. But the book of Hebrews takes this one step further Swapping out the word ears for a body. That is, a body you have fashioned or prepared for me. Now, the New Testament authors sometimes took license to do things like this, to make the underlying big idea that much clearer. But this substitution of a body for ears is reasonable because, obviously, the sculptor is not just fashioning a set of ears— He is preparing an entire body. So now, imagine that in David's vision, this body then sits up, as it were. The figure comes to life. And he is 
much more than a pair of ears. He has a mouth and he speaks. He has limbs since what he says is, I have come. He has a mind because he's self-aware, declaring that in the book of the scroll or the scroll of the book, it is written of me. And he's no robot, no puppet on strings. He has a will. As he says, I desire or I delight in the ESV to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, desire and delight, this means that this is his choice. It's not a mindless program. He is no slave without a will. I desire, I delight to do your will. It gives me pleasure, O Lord, O God, to do what you ask of me. What is this picture that David is painting for us? It's, of course, nothing less than a poetic envisioning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And that's exactly what Hebrews insists. When Christ came into the world, he said... Now, there are two problems with this understanding of the psalm, of course. The first is that although we're getting there, it's still not entirely clear why in a psalm about deliverance, there's this discussion about the appropriatenesses of, of sacrifice and offerings. And then inserted into the middle of the discussion of sacrifice and offerings, we have the arrival of this mysterious figure, and he's talking about scrolls and books. We'll come back to that problem in a minute. The other problem is that it may sound like I'm asking you to believe that this psalm started with David as the speaker, but that now the speaker has switched to Jesus for some reason. In other words, David said, I waited for the Lord and so on, but now none other than Jesus himself is supposed to be proclaiming, here I am, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written about me. Remember what I said way back at the beginning of this sermon? Figuring out who's speaking in a psalm is tricky. But if you think about it, that's true of most songs, isn't it? Think of any song, especially one that tells a story. Who is identifying with the words of the song? Or who is expressing themselves through the words? Is it the person who wrote the lyrics? Is it the composer of the music that brought them to life? Or is it the characters who are depicted in the story that the song is telling? Or is it the one who's rendering the heartfelt performance of the song that you're hearing right now? Or is it the listeners who are completely absorbed in this moment? Or is it everyone who has ever known and loved the song? course it's all of these people and so it is with the psalms the only difference is that the psalms are holy songs though they arose out of a particular history the words are eternal and speak universal truth so the question of who is speaking is not only harder to answer but we have a greater responsibility to consider it with more precision than we normally would 
David wrote these words out of his own gifts, out of his own situation, but Jesus as the eternal word had already conceived of David and his words, and Jesus as the word made flesh sang them in the years that he dwelt among us, his vocal cords vibrating the same air particles that we breathe. And Jesus, the head of the body, the divine worship leader, leads us as we sing them still. So, yes, one person thought up these words and wrote these words down. But more than one person is speaking them. Now, to be clear, this isn't my idea. There's nothing particularly innovative in this understanding. As I said earlier, it's already stated clearly in the New Testament, or at least it's strongly implied there. But it was the early church fathers, people like Augustine, who fleshed it out. In his writings on the Psalms, Augustine does not argue with the fact that David is the author, but at the same time, he's always alive to the reality that Jesus is also speaking. That said, since Augustine took thousands of pages to work through every phrase in the Psalms according to this conviction, he clearly understood that this can't be done simplistically. It's not casual. It's not a matter of inserting one comic book character's words into another character's speech bubble. When a whole host of people could legitimately be thought of as uttering David's words, we have to spend time considering just how they fit into each mouth. And if that mouth is Jesus' mouth, we ought to approach the task in holy fear. But this brings us back to the problem of why Jesus turns up all of a sudden in this particular psalm, talking about how it's written about me in the scroll. Well, if these words fit Jesus' mouth best in the midst of David's song of deliverance, there can't be much argument with the fact that here Jesus the Logos, the eternal word, is speaking of the whole Bible. The book that he inspired from eternity past. The book whose message he embodied. The book that will last forever, even when everything else has passed away. But how exactly does it speak of him, this scroll? And why mention the scroll here when David has been talking about deliverance and sacrifices. Is it all just a bit random? No. Because the scroll is all about rescue. The first hint of rescue that we get in the Bible is way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. God curses the serpent. And in the curse, he promises that the woman's offspring will crush your head. Now, when Eve's first son is born, she is so desperate to believe that he will own God's promise, that she and Adam now have in their possession the hero who will slay their crafty adversary that she celebrates by calling him Cain. A word that in Hebrew sounds like the verb to acquire, to get. 
Eve got Cain, and Cain would be the one to get God's promise for them, to get all of their offspring out of the slimy pit that they had dug. Abel, on the other hand, is the Hebrew word for vapor, for breath. He was apparently not one from whom they expected great things. Now we're told that Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God. And there's nothing in the sacrifices themselves that tells us why God rejected Cain's offering. But in Abel's humble name and Cain's bitter reaction to God's rejection, we find some strong hints. The same serpent's tongue that first tickled Adam and Eve's ears, now lashed Cain's, inflating his ego, inflaming his outrage, his self-righteous conviction that justice had not been served. And the perpetrator of the injustice was none other than God himself. God now had the audacity to lecture him, Cain, the hero who was destined to crush the serpent's head? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. The serpent is coiled, ready to strike. It desires to have you. Well, Cain, knowing he could not kill his new mortal enemy, God, did the next best thing and killed his humiliating brother. Cain got got. He could not fulfill the prophecy to crush the serpent's head because he was only the first in a long line of self-appointed heroes who supposed that in offering God the fruit of their labors, they are gracing him with something that he is somehow lacking. In other words, they believe that their sacrifice is doing God a favor. All-powerful, unlimited God. But God knows that the only thing unbounded about us is our capacity for self-deception. He knows that our brand of self-sacrifice is usually nothing other than self-worship. So to fulfill this first prophecy of deliverance in the scroll, all along the way, God chose what is low in the world. God chose what is despised in the world, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Yes, it is Jesus, gentle and lowly, who says, it is written about me in the scroll. Genesis 3.15 is, of course, only the first of many words of promise in the scroll of the one who brings rescue. David himself became inscribed as a type of the one of whom it is written in the scroll. The one who would ultimately fulfill God's word to destroy evil even as he rescues us. God 
glorified himself by becoming a humble servant. In closing, listen now to Isaiah chapter 50. To the continuation of the words which we heard at the beginning of our service. The portion of Isaiah known as the servant's song. It's a short passage starting in verse 5, chapter 40. Sorry, chapter 50, I mean. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. And I've not been rebellious. I've not drawn back. I offered my back to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And here's the point. David saw the servant who saved him. He saw that he was rescued with a sacrifice, but without all the stuff, without extravagance, without any show, just this. Here I am. I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. The servant prepared, offered himself his perfect self, simply. He offered the blood of one who, like Abel, was seen as worthless, but it was blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. We desire to do your will, O God. Your law is written on our hearts. Lord, would you dig ears for us? We don't want to be like those who have eyes yet are blind, those who have ears but are deaf. We know so many are like that, and we know that we are like that so often. Lord God, let us not be caught up in a sense of duty and responsibility where we think we're sacrificing our gifts on your altar, but in reality we're just worshiping ourselves, making ourselves indispensable. O oh God, let us look to you, O oh Spirit, only through you can your kingdom come. Not by our efforts, not by some misguided plan, no matter how grand our strategy. Humble us like your servant that we may be willing to lie on your table 
to have our ears be scraped out by your loving hand, that we may do your will, that you may be delighted in our sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.